All right, so let's go on to, oh, just an introduction to critiques, and then we'll go on to the questions I was talking about. So critiques, when we talk about a critique, they generally involve three aspects of the work when, you, when, you, when you're talking about critiquing your work. The composition, the technique, and the concept. Welcome to the Potter's Roundtable, a monthly podcast where we share our passion for the ceramic arts and a collection of topics specific to potters. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Enjoy the show. So the composition is what we were just talking about. The elements of the design and the principles of design, as well as the functional aspects of the design. If it's, a, if it's something to be functioned, how are the parts assembled? How are they put together? What does it look like? That's what we were just talking about. So that's the composition aspect of it. The technique is literally that, is the technical, the technical proficiency. How was it made? Is it refined or is it sloppy? Are there any obvious defects in the way it was made? What's the attention to detail? How thoroughly has the artist paid attention to the whole work? We'll talk more about this when we talk about comments. But, so is it, is it well made, basically? Does the, does the artist look like they know what they're doing? Do they, do they, did they master the material and the technique? And finally, the, con it's the, the last one, the concept, it's the concept or the goal or the purpose. Just what is it? And so when you're, if you're critiquing a work, you're looking at it and, you, and if somebody says, well, like I say, for instance, a teapot, if you have a teapot and it's really meant to be a functional teapot, but you can see obvious features about it that aren't going to work, then it's not satisfying, it's, it's not satisfying its concept or its goal very well. Or if somebody's trying to make a political commentary with a sculpture or a work, and you look at it and you can't figure out for the life of you what it's supposed to say, especially if they're confusing signals, then that's not, that's not working. It's not working. Okay? So we'll talk about, we'll talk about these, these three, but, but now in the form of questions. These aren't in any particular order. Um, these are just sort of, but I say, so these are, these are ways that I think you can, you can talk about, you know, you can look at your work, the ways to sort of analyze your, your own work. And it's, you'd be doing the same thing if you were critiquing somebody else's, but this way you can do it in, this, in the privacy of your own home, okay? <laughs> or in, the, in, you know, in your dimly lit basement, okay? <laughs> so the first, the first one I have here is, is and this is on, so we're going to talk about composition first. First one is, do all the parts work together? We talked about all these things related to parts, but do they all work together? Are there, when you look at the piece, whatever it is, is does it look like they're all part of, of the whole? Because I don't want, even though we were talking about emphasis before, when I look at something, I don't want to just see one part. I really want to see the whole. And yes, I may want to, I want to emphasize certain parts, but I still don't want to, when I look at a teapot, only see the spout because I can't get my eye off the spout and I don't see anything else. So, and this is the unity versus variety also. So I, I, want, I, want to, I want something that looks consistent, where all the parts seem to fit, they seem to belong together. And that includes things like the form, the surface also, does the surface seem to match it? Does the color even sort of go with it? If I have a, uh, and, and again, this is where people violate the rules and they go, oh, how creative. But I mean, for instance, if I have, let's say I have a, a very oriental style teapot with you know, smooth curves, very simple design, and I paint it in bright red and white stripes, 
that doesn't really go, nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't really go with what the form is saying. Now, now maybe you're trying to do that on purpose. Maybe you're purposely trying to violate that rule, and so that's your statement. I'm violating, the, I'm violating this design principle by having this, this conflicting surface design with the form. Um, and, this, and then, so, these, so some of this is, you know, as with a lot of this, a lot of this is very subjective. But normally, you wouldn't, unless you were purposely trying to make that, that, that counterculture statement, you, you would want a surface, a surface color or something that goes with the, the main design elements of the piece. Second, se another way to look at this is, does the design move your eye around and not stop it in one place? Does the design make you want to make the viewer explore the whole piece and not just look at it and sort of see the bullseye in the center or something like that? Or does it also move it off the piece? You, could have, you, you might have a strong diagonal line, which when, when your eye, and your eye tends to naturally follow lines. I mean, this is, this is why lines are so fascinating because your eye naturally sort of traces them. Well, you don't want a line on a piece that leads your eye off the piece because you're trying to keep the person looking at the piece. So you don't necessarily want, you don't necessarily want some, a feature so strong that they go, oh, look at that. And their eye doesn't come back to the, their eye doesn't come back to the work, okay? So again, this is where, you know, there's a, there's a balance to it, okay? Um, but we want, the, we want the viewer to explore the work. And along with this, so is there a focal point? Um, and again, I'm not saying there, you know, I'm not giving you answers to these things. These are just questions. But to look at the work, is there a focal point? Have you emphasized something that you want the person to see? Some special feature that maybe, maybe it's something, an aspect you're good at. Maybe you, you've done a design, a surface carving, or sgraffito or something. But have you created some feature to, to, to invite the viewer to notice this in particular, okay? Um, and overall, just is the work interesting? Is it memorable? If, it, if it's so simple and so, you know, again, where somebody can look at it with one glance, are they ever going to even remember that they saw it? Okay, and then next thing is what's and then the, so the, and these are maybe these are obvious questions, but this is I think this is a, a way to, to if you put them in a form of questions, it forces you to think about it. So what's the nature of the symmetry? Maybe you're not thinking symmetry, but when you look at it, maybe you know when and you stand back and you get and you might go, you know, that's really very symmetric, and then you can say, well, am I satisfied with that? Is that what I'm trying to is that what I'm trying to say? Because I've ended up with something which is really very symmetric. And that has certain, as we talked about, it has certain connotations. It, it implies stability. It's not very active. There's nothing wrong with that. But is that what you wanted? And is it consistent with all the other features of the piece? Or is it asymmetric? You know. Okay. So just ask the question, and and then uh, and and think about you know from that point of view, is it symmetric? Do I care? Okay. Um, or next thing is, are there whole divisions or even divisions, or have I, avo have I avoided any even divisions? So do I have lines that cut it evenly in half, or things like that? And again, part of making it interesting. Another one we talked about is, is the scale of the work appropriate for whatever, and, and this may be more or less important in some cases, but is the scale, should it be, does it, if, you know, is it, if it's functional, then the scale is very important. You know, if you're making a T-bowl or something like that, then the scale is very important. It needs to be a certain size to have a certain function. Like, you know, is a teapot the size of a, of a, of a, of a you know, a, a golf ball really functional? If, you know, or is it for even one cup or something like that? So is the scale important? Or if it's just an emotional response, 
Does it have the impact that you want it to have? The next one is, is a really interesting, and, and um, uh, Ruby alluded to this a little bit earlier, something called the near miss. And by this, this is an important, comp, this is an important idea. Are there, I asked the question, are there any near misses? And by a near miss, this is a design feature that doesn't quite look like it's, it's done well, so it looks like you didn't quite do it. So in other words, if you meant to divide something, let's forget the, the, the half, but let's say you meant to divide something in half and you didn't quite divide it in half, enough so that your eye notices it, it's sort of, it bothers you. It's not obviously intentionally not in perfect halves. It looks like you tried to divide it in half, but you didn't quite get it, and so that's a, that's a near miss. Any feature that looks sort of unintentionally bad is a near miss. And, it, and it, could be, it could be the shape, but it looks like when the person looks at it, they say, you know, I think they were trying to get that handle on the center, on the end, but it's slightly off. It isn't, it isn't centered on the end. Or the, the rim comes up and one rim is obviously a little lower and it's like, yeah, something happened. Maybe it was an accident in the kiln or maybe it was intentional, but they didn't quite balance the form when you can see it was meant to be balanced. That's a near miss. And you really want to avoid, avoid those. So that part of this is, if you're going to do something, make, it make, it, make a definite statement. If you're going to make it, divide it in half, then divide it in half and make sure you really do hit a half. If it's not going to be in half, make sure when you look at it, it's obviously not a half. It may be close to a half, but you can say, okay, I can look at that and see that person meant to be close to a half, but not a half. It's not so close that it's kind of bothers you like, oh, did they mean it or did they not mean it? So part of this is being, is being, is being forceful in what you do. Be, you know, be definite in what you do. Don't be, don't be sort of wishy-washy. Okay, um, and along with that, it's kind of continuation. Are there, when you look at a piece, are there any weak or unintentional features? Are there any features? And again, you have to sort of, maybe when you're still making it, it's kind of hard to analyze it, but you have to sort of step back from it and then look at it critically and pretend it's not yours, pretend it's somebody else or something. And then say, okay, is there something about this that just looks weak? Meaning it's undersized or it's, it's not emphasized, like it should be emphasized, but it's not enough. Or are there unintentional features? Are there things, for instance, when the, um, when, let's say, you're, again, you're firing something with feet and the feet bend a little bit in the firing, so it slumps a little bit. And so now the whole piece is not sitting square, it's, it has slumped a little bit because the feet bent. And when you look at the piece, you can tell that was not intentional. You weren't, this was not intended to sit slightly tilted. It happened, regardless of whether you did it or it happened in the kiln, and you can see that, no, that's not right. That's an unintentional feature. It's, an, it's a weak feature, because it, it looks like you've got an otherwise very symmetrical form and it's sitting slightly crooked. Okay? Another, thing, another question to ask yourself, and this is all about composition, is what does the form suggest? Not what you wanted it to do, but what it, when you look at it, what does it actually suggest to do? And this is where sometimes it, it does help to ask somebody else, what do you, you know, how do you react to this, if that's an important thing? So is it active or passive? When you look at it, does it, does it look like, does it suggest energy and movement or, or not? And again, don't, don't include what you wanted it to be. Look at the piece objectively and say, what is it actually, if I inter pretend you never saw it before, and this is why I found, like, for my, I know I did this in my own work, I put it away for a while. I can't critique it right after it comes out of the kiln. I'll pack it away because I've had, I have all these expectations that I'm hoping, and, and, I, and, I, and if it doesn't come out exactly like I want it to, I tend to pretend that it did anyway. So, 
So I pack it away, and then I'll bring it out later where I've gotten a little more distance. And then I can look at it and say, you know, that really didn't work right or something like that. So a little separation helps. So what does the form suggest? Is it active or is it passive? Is it top heavy or bottom heavy? When I look at it now objectively, I might go, you know, it really came out looking a little bot more bottom heavy than I, than I had hoped for, something like that. Part of this, what does the form suggest is, is it, is it f more formal or is it informal and loose? More, more. So is it, do you want, did you want, again, forget about what you wanted, but when you look at it, do you get the impression that this is kind of a more formal, which maybe means symmetrical form, or is it a little more casual, looser form? And that's not good or bad, it's just that recognize what it is. And then you can say, then you can look at it and say, well, you know, it, it came out a little more rigid looking, and then this is where you can modify your technique or change your design, because you say, you know, I had this image in my mind of what I wanted to make, and now that I look at it, it, ends, it looks more rigid and formal than, than I, what I was hoping. And you can say, okay, well then what do I need to do, you know, if that's the direction you work, what do I need to do to change that in the future? How would I modify this to loosen it up a little bit, for instance, if that's what I wanted? And along with part, so part of this sort of as an overall thing, and this is a little bit repetitious, but it's another way of saying this, what's working and what's not? What is about the piece that, and this is what I mentioned earlier, like when we talked about what are the good features that if I make this again, I want to keep. I, I really like this, this lip that I created, or I really like these handles. And, and whereas this, I want to change the bottom. I don't like the angle that I created by the foot ring, for example. So what's working and what's not? And so along with that, you, you have the question of, well, what are alternatives for each design feature? If I, if I, what, what, what could I do differently? If let's say I don't like the way the feet came out on something, um, and I'm not, but, so then to really think about it hard and say, okay, well, how else could I have done the feet? What, if everything else is the same, what alternative designs could I have done for the feet? And so this is where it takes a little thought and a little experimentation, a little imagination to say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of play, maybe I'll take some clay and I'll make some little maquettes, little models of pieces, or I'll make some sketches, but what, can I, what could I have done differently? This is where you're, now you're sort of breaking new ground. You're not just looking at, you've gone past just analyzing, you're saying, okay, I've recognized the feature I wanna change, now how do I do it? What could I have done differently? Along with this, what's working, what's not, which is, um, which is different for three-dimensional versus two-dimensional, Three-dimensional pieces have to work from all sides, meaning they have to look good from every direction. Two-dimensional art is great. You look at it, and it only has to look good in two dimensions. A good three-dimensional piece has to look good from every possible direction. The top, the bottom, the left, the right, every possible view. So this is really complicating it because with a teapot, it's not just looking at the profile. I want it to look good when I look at it with the handle facing me or I want it to look good with the spout facing me, or I want to turn it over and look at the foot ring, and I want to look down at the foot ring, and I want to see how the foot ring is placed relative to the other pieces. So it has to work in every direction. And then along with this overview is, another question is, is it overstated or overdone? Have I overdone it? Have I put in, you know, I have all these great ideas for surface decoration and features, and I've put them all on one pot. Um, in which case, maybe say, okay, next time I'm going to make 10 pots and incorporate all these ideas rather than put the 10 ideas on one pot. Um, another question, when you look at it, and this, again, this is a broad one, is that 
for any, any ceramic work are the outlines smooth and continuous curves without having any breaks. So in other words, I don't, this, this, is, this can be whether it, let's say you're throwing something on the wheel. This could be either something that you're throwing um, in one piece, or it especially applies if you're throwing pieces and you're assembling pieces. So you wouldn't want to make a large form, let's say like this, where because you've assembled it in pieces, you can see that there's a break in the curve there where there was a joint. Okay, and this this could be a, this could be single thrown, you know, thrown in one piece or especially assembled. But your eye is is very good, very sensitive to looking at curves and tracing curves, and you can see a little wiggle on a line. You may not even know in your head what you're seeing, but a slight variation, just a little hiccup on a line, your eye your eye notices that. So it's really important that, and it doesn't matter whether they're straight lines, and you don't want a straight line with a little jog in it like that. You see that that becomes really that's a focal point almost. So it's really important when you're looking at your work and you're turning it around to see whether are all the curves that you've created smooth. Or if you have a change in curve, is the, is the transition smooth? So if I'm, if I'm going something with a neck and I'm coming down like this, do I have a smooth transition between this curve and this curve, or do I have some kind of a little hiccup in there? Because again, your eye, when you look at it, your eye is going to be tracing these lines, and you don't want something to stop your eye. And your eye will stop. Your eye will see this little, this little irregularity, and it'll sort of hang up on it. And you want the eye to sort of smoothly flow around and follow all the lines on the piece. So are the, are the curves smooth and continuous without any breaks or little jogs in them? Is it really important? So it's important to sort of stand back and just look at the outline, maybe turn the piece, if it, let's say it's a wheel thrown piece, and just turn the piece and look at the outline, see whether the curves all the way from the lip down the outside of the body, right down into the foot ring to the base, are they smooth and continuous curves or are they little hiccups? And I, meant, I touched on this earlier, but another point is, are all the shapes, this is related to the, the, um, the near misses, are all the shapes and the marks confident? In other words, if you're going to do a surface deck, if you're going to do some kind of a, a stamp or some kind of a mark, make it. And this is, where, this is where practice comes in. And this is frankly one of the things that you, 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 you notice with a lot of sort of professional or very advanced work. You look at it and you can tell the person knew what they were doing. So any mark or gesture or anything wasn't hesitant. It doesn't look like, like, like oh, and, and you, where it looks like they tried to do it, they just did it. And it could be just a mark, or it could be the shape of a curve, but everything looked confident. And so that, that's an important point also, is that you want all the shapes and all the marks. When you do something, do it. Either do it or don't do it, but don't sort of, don't sort of half do it. Because you, again, you, it's easy to spot. You look at it and you go, oh, it didn't quite do it. And this is one of the things you really notice on very professional and very advanced work, is that everything looks confident. It looks like they know what they're doing. You may not like it. That's a different question. You may not, or it may not suit your taste. But it looks, it, it's confidently done. And the last, the last point I have along this is just, this is kind of looking at it overall, is does the work look well thought out? Does it look highly developed? And, and which is part of the same thing. So in other words, when you look at it, when you look at the work, does it look like some thought went into it? And this is another feature of, if you want to call it professional or very advanced work, is that people have thought about it and, and planned it, and maybe they've done multiple versions of the same piece, and, or they have an idea, let's say, for a handle, and they didn't just put the first handle on the piece that they, they thought of. They might have done 25 handles and, and explored handles to see which one worked with that particular form the best. 
so that when you look at it, they've really settled on one that really suits all the criteria that, that all these other things we talked about, it's the right size, it's the right shape, the curves match. So they've put a lot of thought into it. And you can look at a piece and you can see that, yes, yeah, somebody, has, somebody has put some thought into this piece and everything sort of works. And so that's part of also just overall, does the, does the, does the work look well thought out? Does it look like people have you know, put some planning and thought into it? Okay, so now, we, so now we'll talk a little bit about technical proficiency. So this is just, so overall, just what's the quality, when you look at the work, what's the quality of the craftsmanship? Are there defects? Did the artist pay attention, meaning you, pay attention to, to detail? What's the finishing like? Is it well finished? And along with that, an important part of it is, this is, to me, I think is really important, is do all the aspects of the work reflect the same level of attention? So don't make a beautiful, you know, thrown piece and then skimp on trimming the foot ring or trimming the base. And you can tell, you look at it and say, oh, it's a really nicely made piece, but they rush through the foot ring. So to me, almost, it's more important to have consistent level of attention to the work, even if it's not the greatest, most refined, at least it's consistent. This goes back to uniformity. Because again, if I, if I look at something where part of the work is finished to a certain level and another part isn't, I immediately, it, 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 that's part of the uniformity. It doesn't hang together. And I also think, well, why didn't they, if they did that, if they put all that attention here, why didn't they put all that attention here? So in addition to the quality of the craftsmanship, it's also important to have it uniform. Pay, you want to pay the same amount of attention to everything you do on the piece. If you're going to do it quickly, then do it quickly overall. But, but at least make it so that you don't see parts that look like they were neglected. Hope you're enjoying the show. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps new listeners find the show. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates as new episodes are released. Now let's get back to the show. If you'd like to see a video version of this presentation, just head out to YouTube and search for Washington Street Studios. And then in particular, on, with respect to foot rings, um, and foot rings, I'm assuming, are going to be mostly on functional pieces, um, are, they, are they too big? Are they too small? Are they in the right location? I mean, if, for instance, I mean, just on functional pieces, you don't want foot rings, let's say, on bowls or things that are too far in if they're going to be for serving or function work, so that if you have some heavy food in the bowl, like mashed potatoes, and somebody digs a spoon into it, it's going to tip the bowl over. So the, the foot rings need to be located with, with the function in mind. They can't be too big, they can't be too small. You don't want an enormous just size foot ring because then it looks, in addition to the function, it looks oversized. We're talking about like focal points. It becomes a focal point. And unless, unless you've got some fantastic design or some reason to call the, the, the eye, the attention to the foot ring, it needs to be there, but you don't want it to necessarily stand out above everything else. So it, it needs to, the, the, the shape, I mean, the diameter needs to be right. The height, the size needs to be right, um, and uh, and the location is right. And on most on most containers, the foot ring actually also, in addition to visually, it elevates the one of the one of the purposes of the foot ring is to elevate the piece and make it not look so grounded. So if I have a flat bottom bowl or flat bottom plate, it tends to look earthbound. And so one of the purposes of a foot ring is to elevate it, put it on this little mini pedestal, and it makes the whole piece look lighter. It raises it up off the bottom. Rather, if it's just sitting on a flat bottom, it tends to look heavier. 
tends to look more grounded. But in addition, there's a structural aspect to a foot ring in terms of the firing. Is that, so if I have a bowl like this, and, I'm, and you know how in, when you fire clay, during the firing, the clay actually gets soft, right? During the firing, and it can sag. So one of the purposes is I have to support the weight on a bowl front. I have to support the weight of the rim. Well, if I, if I, put, the, the, if I put the foot ring in too far, the weight of the ring, the weight of the, is not supported, and, the, and the, this can slump, and I end up with a bowl that does sort of that. The, wall, the walls slump down. If I put it too far out, then the bowl looks too heavy, and I'm not supporting the bottom. Then the bottom can drop. So the, the, as a general rule, what I want is, and, and this can be violated, but in general, I want the foot ring under where the base, where the wall meets the base. As a general, as a general. So like, and you can look at most pieces and say, well, the wall goes down to here, and the, and the bottom starts here. Where that transition occurs is roughly where you want the foot ring. Because I don't want it too, I want it far enough out to support the rim, but not too far out where it's not supporting the bottom. And so this is where, when the weight is coming down, this is where the weight is coming down, the weight of the, the, the wall is coming down, and I want it right there to support the weight of the wall. So that it's, un, it's sort of under the wall, but it's also supporting the bottom. And this, gets, this is not so important on small pieces, but you start getting big bowls and really large forms, and then the location of the foot ring becomes really important, in addition to just visually, structurally becomes really important. And, I, and you can look at that, I mean, and, that's, and, also, and you've probably seen this on bowls, where you get the hump in the bottom of the bowl, there'll be a hump here, like that. And part of that's trimming, but part of that is also is because when it was thrown, there was, the, the clay wasn't left in the right place and the clay slumped. Another, another technical aspect is when you're looking at your pieces, are the wall thicknesses uniform? Ideally, you'd like to have the same wall thickness of a piece everywhere in the piece. So to me, at least, uniform is almost more important than is it too thick. I mean, if it's too thick, it's going to be heavy. But at least, at least make it uniform, and then you can, you can strive for, for, you know, for thickness later on. If you, you know, let's say you're learning to throw, and you tend to throw you know, thick wall. Everybody tends to throw thick wall pieces. But it's a good idea to at least strive for making uniform wall pieces. And then with time, you can, you can, as, you, as your skills progress, you can make them you know, thinner and make them appropriate thickness. And, and, th and part of this is visual. Part of this is weight. Um, so that, for instance, if I pick up a bowl and the wall thickness is a lot heavier on the bottom, thicker on the bottom, the, bottom, the bowl's going to feel bottom heavy. And again, for functional pottery, we're not just looking at it. You're not just looking at the design of the pattern. You're handling it. So you don't want to, part, part of having a uniform wall thickness is the, the physical balance of the piece. You don't want to pick it up and go, wow, that bowl is really heavy on the bottom, or that, or that pitcher or that teapot is, is heavy on the bottom even before I put any tea in it. Okay, so, so that's part of it. But the other part of it is, is, the, is the processing, is you want to have uniform wall thickness for drying and firing. Because drying, parts that, that, depending on how the parts are drying and depending on, as you know, the parts are firing, I want the part to dry uniformly so that it shrinks uniformly. And I want it to, I want it to fire uniformly so that it shrinks uniformly. So just the, the, the practical aspects, I want to have uniform wall thickness in terms of drying and firing. Another thing to look at is, from technical proficiency, is you don't want to leave any sharp edges. And there's a, there's a sort of a general rule in, or a, a thing that happens, an occurrence that happens, is that 
when you're making something and the clay is green or it's dry and you have a sharp edge, sharp edges tend to get sharper as they're drying. Because if you think about it, here's an edge that I have in, a, in, a, in pottery. Well, if this is an edge, when the clay shrinks, it's going to shrink like this. This corner isn't necessarily going to pull back that much, but it's going to tend to shrink like that. So sharp edges get sharper as the clay dries and is fired. So you, you want to avoid sharp edges. So this relates to finishing. And also, you want, also want to avoid rough surfaces. And I guess the way I think about that is, the work is not finished when it comes out of the kiln. You should at least be sanding the bottoms of the, the foot rings, sanding the bottoms of the pieces, so that on functional work especially, so that when you handle it, you pick it up, you don't, you don't have a rough foot ring that sort of scrapes across the palm of your hand when you pick up a mug or you pick up a bowl. Um, and for that, the, by the way, the best thing I recommend is aluminum oxide sandpaper for sanding. You don't want to use regular sandpaper because the sand in the regular sandpaper is about the same hardness as the ceramic and it's not going to do much sanding. Aluminum oxide is a lot harder than the ceramic, um, but it also doesn't leave a mark on the ceramic. If you use silicon carbide sandpaper, it'll leave black marks on the ceramic and you'll get black dust that will get into the surface and sometimes you can't clean it out. So aluminum oxide, when, it, when you grind it up into a powder, it's white and so it won't leave any marks on it. And you can buy it at any hardware store. Um, you can buy it. Aluminum oxide. It might have a brand name, like I might call it Alox or something like that, but it'll be aluminum oxide sand. We have some that in the studio here. Dennis just bought us two more packs of the stuff. But you want to, I found it's the best stuff to use, but you don't want it. Silicon carbide is black, and when you rub it on, then the fine texture creates that black dust, and it's almost impossible to get at it. So when you look at the foot ring, especially on porcelain, you can see these black marks. The aluminum oxide is great. It's a lot harder than the, than the, than the fired ceramic is, so it efficiently will, will do the smoothing. You don't have to do a lot. So, but when, it come, when a piece comes out of the kiln, it is not done. It needs to be, it needs to be, you need to pay attention. Are there any rough spots that need to be smoothed off? Is the foot, are, there, are the corners of the foot? If you haven't trimmed the foot ring or smoothed the edges of the foot ring, now's the time to sand the edges of the bottom of the foot ring so that you don't have this sort of sharp edge in your hand. Because again, at least functional work is meant to be handled. And even if it's not, even if it's sculptural, you want a, something that's just, or decoration, you don't want to have somebody put it on, their, on the piano and then they move it and scratch the piano or something like that. You know, so it, to me, that's just part of the professionalism is finishing the work. Is that, is that okay, now I've got this piece that just came out of the canal and I'm handling it. Are there any rough spots? Or is there anything I need to do to it to, fit, to really finish it? Okay, so another thing, and this relates also, I mentioned to finishing, but another, maybe another way to say it is be consistent with your technique. So that when you look, again, this is part of when, when I look at the work, I can see that the, the person has, has paid the same attention or the same kind of technique overall. So they didn't, when they, if they, when they were shaping the rim or maybe or doing some carving on a bowl, let's say, they did a really nice, smooth finishing, but then when they did the foot ring, it was kind of rough. And if that's your intention, then make it very obvious that you didn't want the foot ring, you wanted the foot ring to be rough. This, is, this gets into the near miss is that if you wanted a contrast between the, 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 the surface on the foot ring, and I just did that on some bowls recently where I trimmed the foot ring and, I and it was a very groggy clay, and I purposely left it really rough because I wanted that to contrast with the body of the pot, but I wanted to make sure that it was very obvious that it was intentional, that it didn't look at it and go, oh, they didn't do quite the same job on the bottom. So make, if, be consistent, but also make it intentional so that you can see that something was an intentional feature, not just overlooked. 
And for functional work, again, we've mentioned this several different ways, but make sure it's functional. Is it comfortable to handle? Um, are the lips on mug, for example, or a drinking vessel, are they comfortable where your mouth or your lip hangs over them? You don't want angular, you don't want a sharp line on a lip. Is it comfortable to use? Is the handle actually comfortable in the hand? Is the, is the form stable? When I set it, like with a teapot, when I set it down, does it, does it rock or does it tend to stay down? So the point is, if it's functional, make sure it really is functional and all the parts do what they're supposed to do. When, you, when, it, pours, when it pours, does it dribble? Or do, have you made a spout that, that pours without dripping and without, without dribbling? I've seen an awful lot of teapots that were sold as functional teapots and you pour them and then the last of the tea rolls down the front of the pot. Or a pitcher, especially pitchers, that, are pour, that can't, don't pour for beans, because you go to pour them, and the, it either gushes out, and then when you let go, it dribbles down the front of the pitcher. So it looks nice with flowers in it, but not with, not with you know, lemonade. And I guess, and the other thing is, as I mentioned, as far as comfortable, is what's the overall balance of the piece, especially functional? So that when I pick up a, piece, a pitcher, if I imagine I've got this pitcher full of liquid, is the placement of the handle such that I can comfortably balance the weight of all the, of all the, the liquid in the pitcher? Or is it sort of, do I feel like I almost need a second hand to hold the pitcher because the handle, the location of the handle isn't right or the shape of the handle isn't right? Or if I have a teapot, again, is the teapot handle in a position where when it's full of tea, I can comfortably carry it and not feel like I have to support it with a second hand? Or even coffee mugs. I've seen coffee mugs where you, if you don't have you don't have sort of almost grasp it. It tends to hang down on your finger. You know, instead of staying upright, it tends to want to roll down. So it just is the balance of the piece right? And then, so then, last, a few comments about the, the concept or the goal, when you think about it, is, and we talked about this before, but just look at the perk and say, you know, what is, the, what is the purpose of the work? What are you trying to say? What are you trying to do? If it's functional, then is it functional? Um, but is it successful? That's the whole, that's the point, is look at the work and say, this is what I had in mind for the piece. Have I achieved what I had in mind? Do pitchers pour well? Are the mugs comfortable to hold? Um, or if I was looking for something that's just strictly, I'm looking for just aesthetic beauty, do I have, for instance, do I, and I, so in that case, do I have curves that have breaks in them where instead of having these beautiful sinuous curves that your eye tends to follow in this graceful form, I've got places where your eye is interrupted. So that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, let's say I'm creating a vase or even a sculpture, and I'm really just after aesthetics. I'm really just looking for plain, uh, an expression of beauty. But I've got technical details that, 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 that conflict with that. I've got lines that I can look at and go, you know, the, the, the break's there. So instead of seeing this beautiful curve, I see these hiccups in the lines. And something else just to think about is, um, is, it, is the idea original or is it a copy? You know, have you really, if, if you're, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but part, but part of this is, you know, presumably you want to develop your own voice or your own style or your own expression. And so if that's what you're striving for, if, that you really want to, you want to produce work that's unique to you, then part of it is just looking at it and say, okay, I've borrowed an idea, but have I, have I played with that idea? Have I tweaked it to make it mine? So when I look at the work, do I look at it and say, yeah, I can see me in that work? Or is it just a copy of something that somebody else did? And then a few final suggestions here that I have just in general. First of all is slow down and look critically at the work as you're making it. 
is don't just wait till the end, if you're interested in doing this, don't just wait until the piece is finished and you take it out of the kiln and you go, eh, you know, or not. But do it, get in the habit of looking at it as you're making it, looking at it critically. So after, while, before you take it off the wheel, if you're throwing it, look at it and saying, have I done everything I can at this point? When you're trimming the foot ring or you're trimming on it, have I, have I, have I achieved what I, what I wanted to right now? Because it's not gonna get any better. So if you, if you do it as you go along, you have the chance to maybe at least change it or modify it as much as possible as you go along. There's an old rule that I like to think about um, that when you're starting to make something, you should be thinking then about how you're gonna finish it. The minute you put the lump of clay on the wheel, you should be thinking about how you're gonna glaze it. Which sounds a little weird, but, but part of the reason for that is, for instance, okay, I'm gonna throw something on the wheel. I wanna think about how am I gonna glaze it, for example. So do I need a foot ring that I can hold the pot by in order to do the glazing. If I'm depending on how I'm going to glaze it, maybe I need to hold it by the foot ring because I'm going to dip it or whatever I'm going to do. So have I, have, I, have I prepared the clay on the wheel so that I can get the proper foot ring out of it so that I'll be able to hold it by the foot ring when I want to glaze it? And, there may, and, and again, we were talking about consistency. If you're making a certain style of a piece, again, just referring to on the wheel, but it could be hand building either way, the minute I start building it, it might suggest a certain mood or a certain, again, what's your purpose for the piece? What am I trying to suggest? So there might be, if, if you haven't, if, we, if I have in mind, let's say I'm making a certain form and I want it to be green, in your mind, does that color suit this form? And are those two consistent with what you were trying to say? So I really try, when I'm making a piece, I really try to think, the minute I pick up the clay while I'm wedging, I'm thinking about, okay, this is the general picture of what I have in mind that I'd like to make. How am I gonna finish it? What colors, am I gonna stain it? Am I gonna glaze it? How, what firing technique am I gonna use? How am I gonna finish this? Because that, I wanna keep those things in mind the minute I start making it, because it might change some of my decisions that I make. For instance, give you an example. I mean, so I'm making something for wood firing and it's going into an anagama. I know right away I'm gonna to have to make thicker walls, probably, because if it's gonna to go to cone 14, I've got, and I'm making, let's say I'm making bowls or a vase or something, I know I've got to make my walls thicker probably to survive the cone 14 or whatever. So right away I have to, I have to think about what am I, how am I going to be firing this piece? So do I need to make design changes in order to accommodate it? Um, there's, another, there's another idea that, that people sometimes refer to and they say, read your bisque. And by that means, when you've, when you've bisque fired the piece, you still have options in terms of design and decoration. And it's possible, you might look at the bisque and, and realize that there's a weak feature. And you can compensate for it um, by the glazing. And it's the old, it's what I call the, the Halley's Comet ploy. It's distraction, like somebody's looking at something and they're going, hey, what is it about? That? And you go, hey, look, it's Halley's Comet. <laughs> so the idea is you, you decorate the piece in a way that distracts the eye from whatever the weak feature is. So you certainly don't emphasize it. If you have a, I mentioned earlier, like I say you have a teapot and it has this enormous spout and it turns out the spout's a little too big. Well, you wouldn't put one glaze on the spout that contrasts with the rest of the piece to focus on it even more. You might do something, you know, like at least blend it in with the body and emphasize some other part to distract the eye. And you, so there's a lot you can do with the glazing and the final surface decoration to compensate for what you might recognize as weak, weak features at the bisque stage. So you're not, you, have a, you have a last opportunity there to sort of modify it a little bit. 
The other thing I'd really recommend is work in series. Most, most, serious, most serious artists, they too work, which means you make more than one of something. And, you, and the idea, if you like the idea, the idea evolves and you modify it as you work in the series. So as you make one and whatever it is, and you try out your idea and then you, and then you critique it. And then you, you pick the good features that you want to keep and you, and you say, okay, there's some things I'd like to change. And then you make another one and you include those changes. And then you make another one. And e after each stage, you're critiquing it. And this way you're refining the piece. And this way you can get toward, if you have a, a picture in mind of what you'd like, you, you work toward it. And you don't expect to all happen in one piece or one firing. And it really is good. It really is. It's good for developing your eye because you're not looking at a, you're looking at the same piece, the same form over and over again. And after a while, you can start to see. And especially if you make a couple of them, then you can see the subtle differences. Maybe you look at one and you can't see. You know, you can't analyze. But if you put two side by side, you can say, you know, I like the placement of the handle. It's a quarter of an inch lower than on the first one but I like the placement of the handle on the second one. And so you say, maybe that's the direction I should go. Maybe the handle should be even lower. So you could explore that and say, well, how, you know, what is the range of locations for the handle relative to the height? And what's the best, what, what looks the best? Or what's the size of the best? And so by working in series, you really have the opportunity um, to sort of explore some of those things and work out some of these things. So I guess ultimately with all of this that I mentioned originally, initially, the goal of all of this is really to develop your own, what they call your own voice, meaning your own style. Something that reflects, that reflects your intentions, that reflects whether it's your personality or something you're trying to say, your message, an original style and a personal style. And so this is where, by working this way and doing this, this critiquing, you are, you're, you're, you're bringing yourself into it. You're, you're, you're deciding what you like, what satisfies you, and then that becomes an expression of you. That becomes, when somebody looks at it, you know how you can look at work and say, oh, I know who made that, because you recognize the features and you associate those with the person. And so ideally, that's what you're trying to do for yourself. You're trying to develop a distinctive style that is, that is the expression of you. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thanks for coming. Thank you. And one... Well, we really want to thank our patrons for supporting our educational efforts. And if you'd like to help us, consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com and look for the Potter's Roundtable. We have five different patronage levels that you could subscribe to. The first, the first level we have is, is what we're calling a clay patron, and that's for a dollar a month. And in, in exchange, you get recognition on our patron appreciation page in, our, in all of our videos. The second level that we have, we're calling a bisque level which is um, $5 a month. And again, you get the recognition, plus you get a Potter's Roundtable sticker that you can put on your laptop. Um, looks like this. Um, the third level that we have is called the Earthenware level. That's $10 a month. You get all the previous benefits, plus you get a transcript of any available episode that we have every month, a transcript of the, of the, of the presentations. The, the Stoneware level is the next one. That's for $20 a month. You get all the previous benefits, plus you get one of our Potter's Roundtable t-shirts that looks like this. And the final level that we have is what we're calling the porcelain patron level, which is for $50 a month. And again, you get all the previous benefits. You also get a handmade uh, Potter's Roundtable mug. Visit www.patreon.com and search for the Potter's Roundtable. Any amount you give will support the creation of a digital library of educational videos and podcasts to support artists, potters, and educators now and into the future.
The Potter's Roundtable is brought to you by Washington Street Studios and our patrons. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and tell your friends. If you want to learn more about Washington Street Studios and shared studio memberships, please visit our website at www.hfclay.com. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time on the Potter's Roundtable.